I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, October 8th, 2012. Boy, that that weekend went by quick. Now, I know that some of you have the, uh, the have today off. It's, uh, what, Columbus Day? Well, I don't. <laughs> Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is oh, no shortage of crazy things being said about God in the name of God by people, well, they ought to know better. They're pastors, teachers, authors, and things like that. There was a time when in order to be a published author in Christianity, uh, you had to be somebody who has demonstrated um, excellence in handling and rightly dividing God's word. Uh, yeah, th- today, it's like the opposite. It's as if the people getting the book deals are the exact ones who, well, not only have they not shown any excellence in handling God's word, they are flat out twisting God's word and saying things that just cannot be substantiated by the biblical text. Now, the thing I have in mind as I'm discussing that is the sermon that we're going to be reviewing in hour number two today. Um, I, I think I've reviewed uh, sermons from this guy in the past. If not, you know, he's on my list of people to, um, well, review sermons for uh, on into the future. Here's the reason why. Because scripturally, there there is actually a biblical mandate uh, for those who aspire to the pastoral office that they must study and show themselves approved as workmen who need not blush with embarrassment, who rightly handle the word of truth, or uh, rightly divide. Uh, that's the idea there. And so, or uh, rightly cut, actually, if you want to go with the Greek. But uh, the idea here is, is that people who are preaching, teaching pastors 
are not to be somebody who just wings it and just makes up stuff on their own or or basically comes to a biblical text and go, I I think this is kind of sort of saying to me that it's something like this or along these lines. And so when a pastor, uh, it it, it can be demonstrated that that person just has absolutely no skill, no ability whatsoever to rightly handle God's word. Biblically, they are disqualified from being pastors. And it doesn't matter how many people in the you know they they claim have uh, come to Christ as a result of their ministry, whether they perform miracles or not. It, it, the fruit that we're to be testing over and again uh, by you know by Bible pastors, teachers, authors is their fruit based upon how they're handling God's word. So if they're mangling it, twisting it, and all that kind of stuff, then there is a huge, and I mean huge, problem. And that is is that they don't meet the, you know, the biblical qualifications to be a teacher. So um, we're going to be, uh, in hour number two, I'm you know, just going to let the cards down, we're going to be going to Substance Church uh, in, up in the uh, Twin Cities area of uh, Minnesota, and um, we're listening to a sermon entitled Pharisectomy. And you're going, what's a pharisectomy? Well, he's taken the word Pharisee and added the word ectomy to it, you know, as if, you know, somehow we're got to, we got to cut out the Pharisee within you. And as I have, re- I've listened to the sermon twice today in, pre- in preparation for the program. And literally, <laughs> there are so many things wrong with this sermon that um, I don't even think I'm going to be able to catch them all. It's It's just that bad and such a... I mean, it, it, it. This guy has like zero skill in in handling God's word. And the worst part is, if there's, you know, it's not just that he's preached a sermon called Pharisectomy. He's actually a published author, and he's preaching um, based upon the book that he's had published under the same name. And it just shows, you know, when you when you listen to the sermon. In fact, if you don't listen to sermon reviews here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, I, I, I know from time to time I request that you go ahead and, you know, um, grit your teeth and just, you know, slug through, uh, one. This is one of those ones I would like you to slug through for the very reason, because there are particular themes in the things that are said in this sermon that, um, I'm hearing more and more and more of out there in general evangelicalism. Um, let me, I'll kind of tease out the themes for you here ahead of time. Um, one of the themes being this is that, listen, there's just all these people out there who would love, who, you know, who who really want to be Christians, but the problem is, is that the church has gotten in the way, and so um, because the church has gotten in the way, all of these well-meaning, you know, people who aspire to be Christ followers, they just they 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 the reason why they haven't come to Christ already is well because the church has gotten in the way, and so it's not that their sin is separated from them from God. It's not that they're dead in trespasses and sins. No, 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 no. These are people who, for the most part, would just love to uh, experience Christ, but the the church has gotten in the way of them and being able to experience Christ. That's one of the themes. Another theme. Um, and this is a growing one that ought to concern people. And uh, let, you know, let, let's see if this sounds familiar to you. Listen, all of that Bible preaching is getting in the way of my relationship with Jesus. We don't have relationships with the Bible. We have relationships with Jesus. So, you know, stop telling me that I need to preach 
you know, the, the, I need to preach expositional, exegetical sermons and preach through God's word and stuff like that. L- you know, th- listen, that's the, you, that you're being a Pharisee. I have a direct relationship with Jesus and all of that Pharisaical insistence on you to for me to preach God's word. You know, that's getting in the way of a relationship with Jesus. You know, listen to these themes, okay? And, uh, you know, I'm getting more and more emails, more and more Facebook comments, uh, uh, you know, with people who are trying to reason with other people who call themselves Christians. Say, yeah, I'm a Bible-believing Christ follower. I've made a decision to follow Jesus, and I surrendered and gave my life to Jesus. They, They talk like this. And then when you start to show them from Scripture... That the things that they're, they say they believe, the things that they're being taught, don't square with Scripture. They turn around and basically, you know, say you're being judgmental and stop quoting the Bible to me because I don't need the Bible. I have a direct relationship with Jesus, as if somehow the Bible, um, you know, you know, knowing your Scriptures is actually getting in the way of you having a relationship with Christ fascinating stuff and all and deadly and wrong. Okay. So we're going to kind of unpack that today. In fact, let's talk about what we're going to do on the, uh, on today's edition of fighting for the faith. Um, just so you know, today's edition of fighting for the faith does not have a theme. This is one of those ones starting off the, the week. Um, there, there were, you know, news items that need to be discussed that just don't fit in any, into any particular theme. So today's going to be one of those hodgepodge editions of Fighting for the Faith. We'll do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We're going to start off with uh, the brand new uh, uh, William Tapley uh, song. Uh, William Tapley has, you know, if, if you've listened to Fighting for the Faith for a while, then you know that William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times, it just has mad skills at songwriting when it comes to um, making songs with his Casio. And so he, he's got a new uh, song that he's just put out. It's called The R Train. It's a blues riff uh, talking about Mitt Romney. So we're, <laughs> we're going to be playing the brand new uh, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet in the end times, uh, hit single, uh, The R Train. So we got that. I've got an email from actually... See, this is, I don't know why, what's going on here, but Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, I'm beginning to think that he's sending me secret cryptic messages. And you're going, huh? Well, if you've listened to the program, then you've noticed that Pastor Charmley, as of late, writes, you know, I, they're like email storms. It's like, in, here comes a, an email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Charmley, and then next thing you know, there's another one from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, and then there's a third. So we've got another email storm from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, three emails that we've got to work our way through here um, regarding Troy Gramling's church, regarding, you know, destiny and kissing frogs and all that kind of stuff. And I'm beginning to think that there's a secret numerology to um, Pastor Charmley's emails. Um, and let me explain it to you this way. A long time ago, when I was a young man, skinny, um, and still learning theology, um, a friend of mine uh, paid for me to go to a catechetical conference up in, in Wisconsin. Pastor Peter Bender up there in Wisconsin uh, has a catechetical academy. And back in the day, he would have an annual conference. And, uh, you know, and so at that conference was the late... Uh, Ken Corby, he was one of the uh, the speakers there, and I just have, 
the, just the utmost respect for uh, uh, Pastor Ken Corby. He was a force of nature. And in fact, if you uh, ever get the chance to sit down with me over a meal and you want, you know, you want to know some Ken Corby stories, I have some Ken Corby stories for you. But I remember at this uh, particular catechetical conference, uh, Pastor Corby was um, he was waxing eloquent on some particular point, but he always makes you know three points. And he, it just as an aside to one of the things that he was saying, he said, and, uh, and gentlemen, gentlemen, always be sure that when you are in the presence of somebody who is speaking heresy, that you cough. But you don't cough once. Make sure that you cough three times. Once for the Father, <clears throat> once for the Son, <clears throat> and once for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> just a, a weird aside that always has stuck with me. So I'm beginning to think that Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, that his recent email storms that are coming in in threes, I've got three emails from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. I'm beginning to think that uh, uh, he's engaging in this same idea that um, uh, the late Ken Corby uh, you know, taught, the idea of that if you're going to correct heresy, do it in threes. So... <laughs> Anyway, so we got that we got to do, and then I've got news. Um, a, a a new website has gone um, has gone live um, regarding James McDonald, and um, it's run and put out by former people who have been a part of Harvest Bible Chapel who have done their research and documented with primary source evidence. Um, some very alarming things regarding what's happening at the Harvest Bible Chapel under James McDonald's leadership. And so um, the name of the website is uh, The Elephant's Debt, The Elephant's Debt. And, uh, you know, I'll, ex- I'll explain how to get there uh, when we get there. But, um, I mean, some unbelievable um, documented stories that, that, you know, that under the leadership of James McDonald, Harvest Bible Chapel has amassed a $65 million dollar debt and at the same time this was going on uh that uh, that Harvest Bible Chapel was amassing the 65 million dollar debt James McDonald insisted on a $100,000 raise to his base salary and he has purchased for himself a 1.9 million dollar home up in Chicagoland so we're, we're going to take a look at that. And then time permitting, I still want to get to this piece from Carl Truman regarding Luther's Theology of the Cross. So we've talked about the sermon review. We've talked about yeah, – with, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And uh, those of you who are fans of uh, of William Tapley's music, you are not going to be disappointed. But since it's a William Tapley update, I, I've got to play our William Tapley update music. Here we go. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end. 
end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, that's our uh, William Tabley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and Co-Prophet of the End Times update. And um, he has a brand new song. Again, William Tapley has got mad Casio skills. I mean, I can't think of another person on the planet who can tickle the, well, plastic ivories on a Casio with the different built-in rhythms and beats like William Tapley can. I mean, this guy is an accomplished songwriter. And so whenever he writes a new song, we here at uh, Fighting for the Faith Always make sure to premiere it here on the program as a means, you know, basically as a service to the body of Christ as well as to William Tapley, you know, to ensure that he has audience enhancement going on. So the name of this blues riff on the Casio by William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, is called Take the R Train. It's a new campaign song designed to help get out the vote for Mitt Romney, here's uh, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times, and his new hit single, Take the R Train. Vote for Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan too. They've got the R Train. Rolling for you. Vote the R party. Full speed ahead. Blue states are liberal. Keep your state red. You know the R trains on the right track. We'll travel to a bright new future and never look back. Don't vote Obama. You'll get derailed. Romney and Ryan won't raise taxes like Obama will. Obama's scary. Biden's a joke. Democrat train wrecks hurt lots of folk. Skip that despair train. Democrat doubt. Hop on the R train. We're moving out. Hear the conductor. Call out all board Please don't be late going through the gate Or you'll never move forward Here comes the R train Rounding the bend Yes, the Obama tunnel's dark But there's light at the end Let's out Obama Like Newsweek did He is our first Gay president After November Michelle will leave Then he'll shack up with Georgette or Steve Just like Bill Clinton After he won That's when we found out Hillary wasn't only the one uh, Just so you know, um, that what you hear in the background is... Um, a gate for a train crossing coming down. Uh, apparently he took some time to shoot some video, which he's projecting onto his green screen as his background. And a train is going to come through here. Um, wow. What timing for take the R train. Giving him oral in the back hall. 
How do we know Obama doesn't like Fred Sam or Paul? Over the trestle, clickety-clack. Here comes the R train. We'll beat Barack. Um, I think I should just move along. All right, time for a little email. It's been a while since I've done email, and I I really need to get to some of the ones I've been hanging on to. But uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley has recently sent in a three-email email storm. And I'm thinking there's some kind of numerological significance to the fact that he's done this not once, not twice, but three times. <laughs> yeah, maybe... <laughs> yeah, I've spent, obviously, way too much time watching <clears throat> the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and Co. Prophet of the End Times videos. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, Bethel Evangelical Free Church, uh, Hanley Stoke-on-Trent in the UK writes, he says, Dear Chris, I understand precisely what is going on when Troy Gramling uh, tells or attempts to tell the story of 1 Kings 17 from memory in his sermon, Happily Ever After. He is retelling it from memory and getting it mixed up with 1 Kings 19. Now, if you remember uh, when he was supposedly telling the story that, you know, poor Elijah, Elijah, he was so sad. He was out in that, you know, in that ravine being fed by the ravens and and he was so sad, but God was trying to perk him up, right? If you remember the what was going on in that so-called sermon. <laughs> so he says, but in 1 Kings 19, Elijah is discouraged by the failure of Israel. He asked God to take away his life. I should say that a man who asks for that is discouraged. I agree, Pastor Charmley. He says, now in 1 Kings 17, there is no Elijah going to sleep. That happens in 1 Kings 19. However, Elijah is worn out and he is hungry, but he is fed by an angel, n- not a raven. In 1 Kings 17, the ravens are plural and feed Elijah often. In 1 Kings 19, the angel is singular and feeds Elijah once. Uh, Gramling uh, says a raven that it only happened once. I call that uh, prima facie evidence that Troy Gramling is conflating 1 Kings 17 and 1 Kings 19. Of course, in 1 Kings 17, God tells Elijah that he has provided a widow to feed him. There is no mention of her son in God's address to Elijah. I should say that he needs to read 1 Kings 17 for all sorts of reasons, most obvious because he has it confused in his mind with 1 Kings 19. Of course, when he gets to the widow, he just completely is confused and saying things that neither chapter says. The water comes from his imagination. So I, of course, fairly recently preached on those chapters, but I have known the difference between the two chapters for about as long as I can remember. You see, Pastor Charmley, you know how to read. (laughs) After listening to that sermon, I'm not convinced that Troy Gramling actually has skills when it comes to like just basic reading comprehension and stuff like that. Obviously, the schools you went to were 
better than his. <clears throat> anyway, we continue. He says, says, all things considered, a preacher should be too familiar with the Bible to conflate two stories in such a way. Obviously, he's not. He's not being deceitful here. He's just showing that he's ignorant of the Bible. So that disqualifies him from preaching. I agree. See, Pastor Charmley, you're absolutely right is that the biblical qualifications given for a pastor. And in fact, let me quote it from the scriptures so that you don't think I'm just making this up or maybe conflating something the way Troy Gramling did. The text in question, by the way, is found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'll start at verse 14. Here's what it says. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearer. But do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling or dividing or cutting the word of truth. And avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and then their, and their talk will spread like gangrene. <laughs> yeah, okay. So here, here's the idea, is that a teacher of God's word is to rightly teach it, to rightly handle the word of truth, not mess it up the, the way Troy Gramling did. It's, it's clear that he's not qualified to be a teacher in the Christian church because he can't even keep his biblical story straight nor rightly uh, teach a biblical text. But I digress. So Pastor Charlie says uh, the, the fact that he's ignorant of the Bible disqualifies him from uh, preaching. If Troy Gramling really thinks that he is given a correct outline of, of 1 Kings 17, and I think he does, then he is not fit to be a teacher in Sunday school. If one of the teachers at our Thursday night children's club at Bethel conflated two chapters of the Bible like that, I would give him or her a dressing down for not actually reading the Bible in preparation. And Troy Gramling deserves such a dressing down. Wait. He quotes the latter part of the chapter, reads it, and yet gives that dreadful conflated version of the first half. That means that he thinks he knows the Bible well, and he doesn't. That is really, really bad. I should, in this case, be very happy to recommend he listen to my sermon on the text. It will help. I, I, you know what, Pastor Charmley, maybe uh, some of the listeners here should uh, get your sermons on this text and then, you know, send them to him on Twitter or something. Because, you know, that's yeah, that's one of the ways you can get a hold of him. All right, second email from uh, Pastor Charmley's recent email swarm, which are coming in threes nowadays. Again, there's some biblical numerological, eschatological significance to this, I'm sure. But next email, uh, Pastor Charlie Wright, uh, the the, uh, <laughs> the subject of this particular email, by the way, reads, Someone send Troy Gramling a Bible. <laughs> Pastor Charlie writes, he says, This evening I was preaching on 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and I'm therefore considerably pained to hear Troy Gram- Gramling's frankly dreadful mangling of the text apparently he believes he knows the bible and he does not we've all been there telling a story from memory and getting things wrong but twice in the same sermon yeah conflating two different events in the life of elijah and then messing up an event in the life of elisha to sum up the widow's complaint as things are 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 are, things are bad the bill collectors keep calling and calling well that's frankly silly no she says my creditor has come to take my sons away as slaves. Now, that's slight, That's a slight difference. The thing he thinks God is saying in the verse is, of course, nothing like the message of the verse in question. We teach our children's club a song that goes like this. Read my Bible. Read my Bible. Read it daily. Read it daily. It's a lamp. It's a lamp. A light. 
to my pathway. Perhaps Troy Gramling needs to learn this one and then do it. I mean, it is, is it too much to ask that a preacher read the Bible? Apparently. Um, I read four chapters a day on average and then more for actual sermon preparation, which leads me to wonder how much time Troy Gramling puts into his sermon preparation. The answer is clearly not enough to actually study the text properly, or even at all, from the sound of it. As a pastor, I should be utterly ashamed to be so ignorant of the Bible. Fair enough it was, if it was Amos 4, but the story of Elijah? But I must desist before I start foaming at the mouth. <laughs> and the last... <laughs> And here's the last email from Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edwards, <laughs> most recent three-part email uh, swarm. Um, the, the, <laughs> the subject of this email reads, Who let <laughs> Troy Grambling loose in a pulpit? By the way, Pastor Charmley, the answer to that is Dan Sutherland. Dan Sutherland, who is the guy who was the official... The conference teacher of the official church transitioning seminar used by the seeker-driven movement, uh, by uh, Saddleback uh, and uh, the Purpose Driven guys, uh, Dan Sutherland. Uh, we've reviewed stuff from him in the past. He's a he's a pretty high up mucky muck major teacher of vision casting and stuff like that. He's the one who let this guy loose in the pulpit, by the way. But. <clears throat> Pastor Charmley writes in the, our third and last email from Pastor Charmley says, Dear Chris, Troy Gramling says, says in 2 Corinthians, it says that we are just glass containers. No, Troy, it doesn't. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 reads, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, I live in potteries. Not sure what that is, but let me continue reading. He says, where we still have a large number of factories that make pottery. I have retired potters in my congregation, so perhaps I have an unfair, unfair advantage. But I hope you know that glass and pottery are two different things. Clay and glass, they're different. Quote, here, here, here listen to this. Quote, we're cracked, and it's the power of God that shines through us when we are when we are broken. Really, that's a quote from the message paraphrase, by the way. Really? Where does it say that in the text? I know that the mess, <clears throat> that's what he calls the message. He calls it the mess. <laughs> it's not the message paraphrase. It's the mess. I know that the mess introduces the concept of brightness into the text. However, Eugene Peterson, who seems to have a complete inability to understand the Apostle Paul, loves to introduce his own imagery into the text while quite ignoring what Paul actually said. I am, I am by now quite convinced that Troy Gramling is one of those unenviable persons who are convinced that they are experts on topics that they really know nothing about. And that worries me to no end, given the fact that he's a pastor. He fails dismally in being able to rightly divide the word of God, dismally. And will someone please get that man a Bible and make sure that he reads it? Words fail me as to how unutterably bad his grasp of the Bible is, and yet he thinks he knows it. I'm sure his use of the mess, that would be the message, <laughs> does not help in any way at all. It's amazing to me that he speaks to people in public as well. He is so very bad. In the name of our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. <clears throat> Pastor Charmley, great emails. Thank you for your insight and thank you for writing in threes. I'm Again, I'm convinced that there's some biblical, theological, numerological, eschatological significance to your recent trifecta, tripart emails that you've been sending me recently. 
With that, we're going to take our first break and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Just trust me, it's not going to get much better for a little while. <clears throat> Hang on. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello. I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I shall be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. Yeah. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? 
Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well. I'll give them a try. I want to invite you to register for the free Biblical Worldview Weekend Rally coming to the following cities the fall of 2012. These are one night and they're free, but you must register online at worldviewweekend.com. We're going to start out October 7th in Destin, Florida. Then we're on to Wichita, Kansas, Des Moines, Iowa, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Rogers, Arkansas, Peoria, Illinois, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Rockford, Illinois. They're free, they're one night, and it's the Biblical Worldview Weekend Rally. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. That's worldviewweekend.com. Please post this on your Facebook, put it out to your email address book. Help us get out the word about these free fall 2012 Biblical Worldview Weekend Rallies. Speakers will include myself, Brandon House, along with Justin Peters, Mike Gendron, Jimmy DeYoung, and a few others. Don't miss out on the fall Worldview Weekend rallies coming to these cities. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if your pastor is biblically illiterate, he's not qualified to teach the Bible. I know this is like earth-shattering news. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our famous two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Look out, look out, pink elephants on parade, here they come. They're here and there, pink elephants everywhere. Look out, look out, they're walking around the bed, on the head, clippity-coppity. Arrayed and braid, pink elephants on parade. What'll I do, what'll I do, what an unusual view. I can stand the sight of worms and look at microscopic germs, but Technicolor pachyderms is really too much for me. <laughs> I am not the type to faint when things are odd or things are quaint, but seeing things you know that ain't can certainly give you an awful fright. What a sight! Chase them away, chase them away, I'm afraid. Need your eight big elephants on parade. Pink elephants. Yeah, that's our James McDonald update music in honor of the Elephant Room 1 and 2, especially 2, where I was, even though I paid to attend it, I was threatened with arrest when I showed up. Anyway, um, there is a website that has just recently gone live. You can find this at theelephantsdebt.com. Theelephantsdebt.com. And it's uh, put together by some folks who've, um, well, they've been in the know um, at uh, Harvest Bible Chapel and have taken the time to actually do some research and take a look and document some of the troubling, troubling things going on under the leadership of James McDonald. The two men in question who are running the site, they're not anonymous. They put their names on the site so that everybody can know who they are. Uh, Their names are Scott Bryant and Ryan Mahoney. Scott Bryant and Ryan uh, Mahoney. And uh, this is one of those um, websites that if you know somebody who's attending Harvest Bible Chapel, um, you know, I would say you need to send them the link to this and ask some tough questions. Okay, let me read from the executive summary of the site, which is found on the homepage. Again, this is at theelephantsdebt.com. Here's what it says: The Elephant's Debt is a website dedicated to exploring some of the underlying reasons why many people have recently begun, both privately and publicly, to question the ministry of James, uh, Pastor James McDonald at Harvest Bible Chapel of Rolling Meadows, Illinois. Over the first 10 years of its active ministry, HBC, could have been fairly categorized as a non-denominational, broadly evangelical church that was largely conservative in its biblical and fiscal orientation. However, critical events in the early days of the new millennium appear to have brought about a significant shift in fiscal responsibility, which was later followed by an apparent shift in theological and methodological commitments. See, the two all all of that went together. So, by the close of 2010, Harvest balance sheet revealed that the church, while under the pastoral leadership of James McDonald, had amassed approximately 
$65 million of debt. While this number in and of itself is shocking, what makes it worse is that HBC leadership told the people in a letter that they were, quote, not going to put our church in a bad position financially. Moreover, as will be demonstrated later, this debt load far exceeds what churches of similar size are known to carry. That's kind of the big deal. Here, think of it this way, okay? Um, when you when you go to apply for a mortgage, let's say that you've you've found the house of your dreams, okay, and you you've decided that oh, I have got to get me that cute little, you know, three bedroom, two and a half bath home over there in that that neighborhood. It's just it's just the most cutest little darling thing ever, okay? And let's just say that it's brand new and it's and it's listing on the market at two hundred and seventeen thousand dollars, okay? Now, what's going to happen before you are get granted, you know, the mortgage of two hundred and seventeen thousand dollars, is is that the mortgage company is going to take a look at your financials. They're going to want to see recent pay stubs. They're going to want to see uh, past tax returns. They're going to run a credit check on you. And the uh, the idea is this: is that yeah, uh, if we loan you two hundred and seventeen thousand dollars. Are you pulling in the uh, commiserate or commiserate uh, annual income that would support being able to make the payments on a 30-year mortgage? Okay, so the idea here is is that if you want a $217,000 home, they're not going to give you the loan if you're making $18,000 a year. Okay, just plain and simple because. Um, what they want the loan to be is a per, you know a, a particular percentage only of your overall income. Now I'm not sure what the thresholds are for that. Now I mean after the collapse of the economy four years ago, part of that was you know was brought about by the fact they were giving loans to people who ought not to be getting loans. Uh, you know who were you know who were not making the right ratios. You get what I'm saying here. So here's the idea: is is that 65 million dollars in debt. Um, that's that's a number that hangs out in space until you attach it to um, what is the what's considered the normal debt load for congregations. Or, you know what's a healthy debt load for congregations of similar size. And the authors of this blog have actually taken the time to do the research to show the documentation that number one that that debt load does exist okay they you know, they in fact they've got an entire section called documents and you can pull up the public documents regarding the 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 loans that Harvest Bible Chapel is pull, is uh, currently uh, uh you know under and then they take a take a look at the larger context in telling the story and show that congregations of similar size you know of 10,000 to 14,000 that a healthy, you know, you know, a healthy debt load shouldn't, you know, exceed particular numbers. So the midpoint is, is that, a, you know, a congregation of 10,000 to 14, you know, or to 15,000, you know, the midpoint, you know, kind of the median debt load, 17 million. Harvest Bible Chapel, 65 million. What's considered high at what's considered a high debt load for a congregation of ten to fifteen thousand, according to all of the uh, all of you know like leadership network you know the, who, that you know specializes in these things, um, a high debt load would be twenty seven twenty seven million. But see, I mean, at this point, Harvest Bible Chapel isn't like even close to what would be considered high, based upon what these gentlemen have taken the time to document. 
you know, $65 million in debt, all because of the vision, the, you know, the 5G vision that uh, uh, James McDonald has cast. Um, they, they, they have put Harvest Bible Chapel in a bad Bad. It's like it's like not even close to good, you know, financial situation. I mean, this would be the equivalent of like you or I, you know, uh, average Joe's having, you know, basically credit card debt up in the two hundred thousand dollar range. Good luck servicing that, right? It's like you how you how are you going to do that? But the, the worst part of the story is is that uh, uh, along the same at the same time that you know, under the leadership of James McDonald, Harvest Bible Chapel was amassing this sixty five million dollar debt uh, at that same time um James McDonald was insisting demanding a $100,000 a year increase to his base salary now what what James McDonald makes he has several different rev- revenue streams and uh, I've heard numbers uh, kicked around by several people who are in the know regarding how much he makes. Uh, what the uh, the authors of this blog document is just one of James McDonald's revenue streams. He has others, and you know, just that single revenue stream. The, um, the you know his base salary half a million dollars a year just from that single revenue stream. And it's also important to note that um, they also document that the home that uh, James McDonald purchased in Iverness, Illinois, okay, purchased it for $1.9 million, $1.9 million, and he was able to make a down payment in cash of $500,000, okay? So he's he's personally carrying a debt for $1.4 million for his home in Iverness, Illinois, and so when you start putting all of this together, okay, you know what this sounds like? This sounds like, well, the same kind of sinful behavior that we're getting from TBN money-grubbing tele-evangelists, okay? An extravagant lifestyle that doesn't even remotely mirror or even come close to uh, the uh, the type of uh, salary that the people who he's ministering to um, are, are pulling in. Like not even close. It's like not even on, it's not even close to on par with that. And the question I have, considering the fact that I've seen uh, the video of uh, you know of you know uh, of James McDonald you know, casting you know vision for this five G campaign and calling on people to commit in their in uh, in Harvest Bible Chapel to sacrificially give to. Harvest Bible Chapel. My question is, do the folks at Harvest Bible Chapel who, you know, the the good people there who attend there, are they aware of the fact that they are being called to sacrificially give to Harvest Bible Chapel while James McDonald currently makes a huge, I mean, ginormous salary, lives in a $1.9 million home while they're sacrificially giving, giving and being told that God demands that they tithe? In fact, he even teaches that you don't, you you don't, um, you bring the tithe. You don't give it. You you bring the tithe. You don't. This is a teaching from James McDonald. Um, do they are they aware of uh, of what's going on here? So, you know, it's a site that you all need to check check uh, check out. 
I have uh, contacted the uh, the authors of the website and have uh, requested an interview that they come on Fighting for the Faith and let, allow me to interview them because I want them to be able to tell their story. But again, if you want to take a look at this and you need to pass this website address along to people, I mean, what's documented there is um, alarming. What's documented there is beyond troubling. What's documented there, it shows... Um, some very flagrant, I would even say sinful behavior on the part of uh, James McDonald and uh, the people that have been coerced and cajoled into supporting his vision. They need to know the details of the vision. And I'm glad this has gone out. So again, you can you can find this at theelephantsdebt.com. Theelephantsdebt.com. Okay, looking at my time, I am I don't have the ability to get to the Carl Truman piece again today. I'll have to postpone it until the future episode of Fighting for the Faith, hopefully tomorrow. So what we're going to do is we're going to take our second break. Um, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button. I've maxed out my friends. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. A good question for this sermon is, does the pastor, his name is Peter Haas, have the, does he possess the right ability to rightly handle God's word that would qualify him to be a pastor? Yes or no? What do you hear?
The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Substance Church in the Twin Cities area of um, Minnesota. The uh, pastor presiding, his name is Peter Haas. The name of the sermon is entitled Pharisectomy. Yeah, it's a word Pharisee and ectomy stick stuck together. Um, Basically... um, Apparently, this is a cure for uh, for those of you who uh, you know contracted religiously transmitted diseases. At least that's what he says. So we're going to take a look at specifically how he teaches God's word. Does he rightly handle it? Does he rightly teach it? Is he correctly teaching the facts? Um, and listen for the themes in this sermon because if you take what he's saying you know, as biblical teaching, then you have to come to the conclusion that pastors out there who are teaching God's word and insisting that God's word be taught in church exegetically, well, they're getting in the way of those who want to have an experience of Christ. Yeah, I don't know how else to put it. So let's um, kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Peter Haas and his sermon entitled Pharisectomy. Welcome to Substance. You're listening to a message from one of our weekly celebration services. You can check out our website, www.substancechurch.com, for more information on our weekly services, subgroups, online giving, and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. And put my soul at ease. You know, uh, a while ago, I, I actually got invited to this disco-themed bowling party. It was at. It was at. Okay, you know, <laughs> Okay, you could tell the sermon's really going to go bad when it starts off in a disco-themed bowling party. By the way, I lived through the '70s. Nothing good came of disco. I'm just saying. So. <laughs> Let me continue. One of those small town bowling alleys that smells musty, like stinky feet, old cigarettes, and mold, right? <laughs> One of those places where, like, every stool at the bar has someone's jean pocket pattern, like, etched into the seat. But I was so pumped to go to this party because I'm telling you, I had the most absurd and effeminate disco outfit you have ever seen. I mean, skin tight polyester. I'm embarrassingly tight. I, I, I even wore a scarf that my wife insisted might confuse people into thinking I was a drag queen, but... Come on, with my glorious medallion and my shirt buttoned down, I, I was confident in my 70s-inspired masculinity. In fact, I, I, I was so confident that I thought for sure the moment I walked through that front door, my friends would just erupt with cheers. You are the disco king. I thought that was going to happen. but I'll tell you what, as I burst into those doors, there was not a single person wearing disco clothing. Instead of the place erupting with cheers, there was total and complete silence. 
There was a group of blue-collar workers from the local mill that literally stopped talking to stare at me. <laughs> the look on one of the guy's faces, it, 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 it said, Son, do I need to beat some sense into you? Well, I very quickly buttoned up that shirt, took off that scarf in record time, and scrambled out of there. It turns out there is nothing that makes you feel more out of place than showing up in a bowling alley in a bedazzled, skin-tight leisure suit. As it turns out, my friends hadn't deserted me. turns out... I got the time wrong. None of my friends were even showing up for another half hour. And, and let me tell you, even when they did show up and drag me back into that alley, my heart rate increased dramatically at the thought of walking past those mill workers again. You know, throughout my book, Pharisectomy, and especially in chapter one, I, I poke fun of a lot of church culture. Yeah, you heard that right. He's published a book called Pharisectomy. And as you listen to the sermon... Ask yourself this question, what has happened to Christianity where in the past it was our best exegete, men who have proven over time that they can rightly teach God's word. They're the ones who were they, they were the ones who were published, okay? Uh, they were held up, you know, they, they had skill in handling God's word. How is it now that unskilled people who have like no ability whatsoever to rightly handle God's word, how is it that they're the ones who are published authors now in Christianity? This is an alarming um, trend that I'm seeing, and unfortunately, Peter Haas here has no business publishing anything in the name of Christianity. He, it's clear from this from this sermon, he doesn't even have like like skill one in properly handling, properly dividing and teaching God's word. We'll explain here more in a minute as the sermon unfolds. And keep in mind, I'm not trying to be mean. But it's important to point out that those of us who have grown up in church are often quite blind to our traditions. Much like an effeminate disco dancer in a small-town bowling alley, we forget it's actually a similar experience to walk into a hand-raising, gospel-singing, or or, or organ-loving crowd of believers. But you know what? That's what getting a pharisectomy is all about. And that's why I love inviting my non-Christian friends to church on a regular basis because we can't really understand the purpose of church unless we regularly invite our non-Christian friends. Okay, we can't understand the purpose of church unless we invite our non-Christian friends, which begs the question, which passage would you take me to to show me what the purpose of church is? You know, right off the bat, it's, um, okay, show me from God's word where it says what the purpose of church is, and let's see if what you're saying squares with that. That would be the first thing I would want to do. We need to, we need to do some semantic work and make sure we understand, we're, we're both on the same page, biblically, for real, regarding what the purpose of the gathering of the saints is for. You understand what I'm saying? We've got to cut out the traditions that keep us comfortable but exclusive. Quite simply, it's... So we've got to cut out the traditions that make us comfortable but exclusive. What are you talking about? What would those be? Can you give me some examples? And where is this this taught in Scripture? I see to forget how vulnerable outsiders feel. And, And even though they don't show up wearing tight disco outfits, sometimes they feel like they are. So let's open up our hearts and ask one simple question. What if our traditions or ways of seeking God were inadvertently sending the wrong message? What if our... Oh, man. You know what this reminds me of? Um, Those of you who've uh, listened to uh, our uh, Max Holiday's uh, 
uh, Budgie Cuts 2 album. We have a we have a sketch in there called Pimp My Church. Now, I'm not going to play the whole thing because, uh, you know, it, it, one of the things we're committed to on that album is is that in order for you to hear, hear the sketches in that album, you actually need to download it. You go to iTunes and type in Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, and you should find our uh, our album. In fact, I think you can still get it off of our website if you click on the link there. You can go to it. But we, it's weird. Uh, I was, in fact, I was discussing this with Joshua, my son, who uh, you know, who helps me. And, you know, he actually does a lot of the writing of the sketches, and then I put the theological spin and twist on it. But um, I played the segment for him before, uh, you know, where he says, "Are we sending the right message?" And I said, "Boy, that that's exactly the 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 words that that I put into the mouth of Gary Sunshine." Uh, the, uh, the, um, the, he's a character in our Max Holiday's, um, Budgie Cuts album, who was a church consultant. Okay. And so, uh, Gary Sunshine is a church consultant and, you know, listen to this. So we published this, you know, back in June and it's weird because now we got this guy using the same kind of language here. Here's Gary Sunshine, uh, from the, uh, Pimp My Church sketch from our, uh, Max Holiday album. Mr. Gary Sunshine is available for an appointment right now. He's our top expert in vision casting and has helped more than 27 leaders like yourself cast their visions and lead their churches to exponential catalytic growth. Mr. Sunshine, I presume? Please, call me Gary. So you called about having your vision cast? For starters, we have to talk about your... Image. You can't expect to be the successful leader of your congregation if you walk around looking like that. It doesn't send the right message. Like the right message? I didn't know there was a wrong message. It sends the wrong message. Okay. Alrighty then, let's just step through these doors here and... Oh dear. What? What? What is it? It's that ghastly looking thing up there with the dead guy on it. You mean the cross? Oh! Is that what that is? Well, that is the first thing to go. I mean... You can't expect this place to be appealing to modern Christians with that Halloween decoration scaring everyone away. Okay, I guess you're right. Of course I'm right. I think I'm starting to understand the right message. Oh good, you're a fast learner. Yeah, so that's just a preview of the Pimp My Church sketch where where Gary Sunshine, our <clears throat> church consultant and you know expert in vision casting, tries to explain the importance of sending the right message. How strange that... Uh, Peter Haas of Substance Church is using that same kind of verbiage here and saying, oh, yeah, listen, you know, there's a lot of people that are just uncomfortable coming to your churches and your, quote, traditions, we have to, he hasn't explained what that is yet, are apparently sending the wrong message. Here's Peter Haas saying that again. Here well, outsiders feel, and, and even though they don't show up wearing tight disco outfits, sometimes they feel like they are. So let's open up our hearts and ask one simple question. What if our traditions or ways of seeking God were inadvertently sending the wrong message? Okay, so um, so the ways that you're seeking God in your so-called church traditions, they're sending the wrong message. Now the question immediately comes up, can you give us some examples of those things that we're doing that, well, would be sending the wrong message? By the way, we're going to be compiling a list during this sermon review of, well, church traditions that send the wrong message. Well, what is up, church? How you guys doing? You guys feeling good? Could you just help me welcome all of our campuses? 
We love you guys. We're so blessed to be able to do church together today. And I just want to welcome all the churches joining us all across the United States for this series. Again, I'm Pastor Peter Haas uh, at Substance Church right here in Minneapolis. And of course, we're actually filming this in our studio campus just outside of downtown, having lots of fun. And of course, uh, again, if you've you've read my book, you'll notice Fair Sectomy. I, I actually share, in the beginning of that, I actually share my conversion story and how I actually gave my life to Christ in a nightclub of all places. And it was kind of a a strange experience. And I'm not going to tell it here, uh, but it suffices to say, literally, so I I was the rave DJ. I actually prayed. uh, I literally prayed this prayer, God, would you show me what religion is the right religion? And it suffices to say, literally, within a minute, total stranger came up to me, grabbed me by the arm and said, hey, hey, Jesus has a plan for your life. And of course, it, it freaked me out. It freaked me out because, again, God ambushed me in my nightclub. You know what I'm saying? That, that, it scared me. It scared me. And, I, I, and, and the reason why I'm sharing that is because I want you to understand, I felt a certain degree of obligation towards God after he answered my prayer like that. I, you know, I, I, so I gave my life to Christ in the nightclub, but I, I felt like if God is, is willing to instant... By the way, you will look long and hard um, talking about regeneration in the Bible as you giving your life to Christ. The biblical gospel is the good news that Christ gave his life for you. We're not called to give our lives to him in that sense. We're called to repent of our sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That's why Christ in Luke chapter 24 says that you know that uh, the disciples are to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. So this popular way of talking about, you know, conversion as you giving your life to Christ, that's not language used anywhere in the Bible. So we now we got a problem here. We continue instantaneously answer my prayer in a nightclub, then you know what? I owe it to him to put up with his weird people. Do you know what I'm saying? Come on. Can any of you just admit it? Come on. The church can be weird. I mean, Christians can be weird. I mean, you know, like, cause we all know that Christians, they're just known to be the nicest people and they don't ever nitpick one another. They never divide. They, you know what I'm saying? Right. Is that how Christians are known? Unfortunately not. Unfortunately in our culture. Okay. Now here's the irony. And I got to point this out here. Okay. Every time somebody says to you, you're being judgmental. They, in fact, are also being judgmental. They're judging you for judging. So this is, this is one of those silly, ridiculous things that people do. By the way, Scripture tells us to judge. Okay, We are to judge. We are to rebuke those who teach false doctrine. We are to only teach what accords with sound doctrine. We are not to even have fellowship with those who teach heresy. So you, you, you get what I'm saying. If you read the scriptures here, uh, they, when they somebody quotes the passage, judge not lest you be judged, they always quote it out of context, and they're not looking at the whole body of what Christ has taught regarding judgment. In fact, Jesus himself commands us to make a right judgment. Look it up. It's in the Bible. It's in the teachings of Jesus. So here, this is interesting here. So he's talking about the importance of having a pharisectomy and, and, you know, and talking about those judgmental Christians. And yet what he's doing here is very judgmental. Okay. 
He's cool. He's got it figured out. He understands what Christianity is all about. All of those judgmental Christians, they've fallen off the turnip truck. They're not in line with the teaching. You see what I'm saying? So listen, if we're going to have a if we're going to have a good theological dis- discussion, a doctrinal discussion, let's lose this idea that oh, you got to stop judging. It's, it's, knock it off. That's not a, a doctrinal debate or even a, a theological discussion about what God's word says. Roll up your sieve, lose the pretense of piety, like some uh, whatever, and let's take a look at this, uh, what you're teaching and see if it squares with Scripture. And I'll tell you what I believe teach and confess, and let's see if it squares with Scripture. The one who is actually teaching what's in accord with what the Scriptures teach, well, the other person needs to repent, and the other person can continue on. You get what I'm saying here? Culture, we're known for being some of the most intolerant, judgmental people. And, and, and on top of that, sometimes we're just strange. We're just strange. And, and again, I know that sounds kind of condescending, but uh, let's admit it. Church culture can be a little bit weird, right? I mean, really. Yeah, it is condescending. Let's call it what it is. You're judging those who you say shouldn't be judging. Really, seriously. I just, um, that's why, again, I, I love inviting uh, my unchurched friends or my atheist friends to church because uh, all of a sudden it really makes me aware of the blind spots, things that I, traditions that I kind of take for granted, assumptions about the Bible that I take for granted. And, and especially, I remember. Okay, so traditions and assumptions about the Bible that he takes for granted. Now, again, we're going to be compiling a list. And the, the, I've got this on, you know, on my iPad here. You know, I, I use a a, ta- a, a, a writing uh, stylus, my bamboo. But uh, we're, the, I put the headline here: Church traditions that send the wrong message. Church traditions that send the wrong message. So we're going to be compiling this list throughout this sermon today. So if you want to compile a similar list, feel free. Again, this sermon goes so far, you know, off the rails biblically that I don't even think I can catch everything, but I'm going to do my my best to get the major themes and things that are going wrong with it. All right, with that, let's continue. Remember, um, uh, contemporary worship churches growing up, I got invited to a few of those growing up. The, the churches that I had attended were not contemporary. I had never really seen drums in a church before. And of course, you know, those contemporary worship churches, man, people did strange things there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people raised their hands. I'd never seen people raise their hands before. That was like... I mean, it was strange. And, and I, again, nowadays, it's, it's increasingly common. You know what I'm saying? Even the Baptists raise their hands nowadays, right? But I just thought, but again, to me, when I, when, I'm, when I first saw that, it looked like everybody started spontaneously slow dancing with seven-foot Jesus. It was like I was at a high school dance again. And that's how it felt. That's how it felt. It was almost like, you know, and of course, the songs, they were so vulnerable. It was like, your love is extravagant. The friendship Mm, it's like what are you doing to jesus what are we doing you know like this is just like it's strange and and again don't don't get me wrong okay i'm not i'm not saying that hand raising is bad uh you know because in fact i i kind of i'm a hand raiser now i've converted i can do it right i'll raise my hands right Uh, but the, the funny thing is First time I remember ever raising my hands, I was so scared. I was so self-conscious. It felt like everybody in the room was watching. There he goes. Look at Peter. Look at him go. Woo! You know, like, I just felt like that. I, I felt, you know, and that's why, I, I'll tell you, that's why you kind of have to do what, what Tim Hawkins says. You, you guys like Tim Hawkins? Anybody hear of Tim Hawkins before? Right? He's like, uh, uh, he's a Christian comedian. He's got all, he has all these names 
for hand raises. And I wanted to teach a few of them to you in case you didn't know a couple names of hand raising. And, and again, you got to, because again, you, when you do it, you got to start out small. And so I love, I love his advice. He always says, you know, maybe hands in the pocket, you know, just kind of get into the music a little bit, just for that little elbow flap like that. You know what I'm saying? Just start out small. And then once you're into it, this is what you do. The first one is this, hold the TV, hold the TV. Okay, that's the, that's the beginner's hand, you know, hand raising. Hold the TV once you're comfortable. You're just kind of getting into it. Nobody's looking at you. You're not self-conscious. All of a sudden, get ready. Here we go. Go big screen. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> big screen. And then next, next is this. Hold my baby. Hold my baby. Mufasa, hold my baby. You know what I'm saying? There's different. Okay, so hold my baby. And then, then from here, we're going to go up, okay? It gets a little bit more complicated. And for those of you who are like maybe intermediate uh, in this, okay? Then the next one is this. It's called dueling light bulbs, okay? And then from dueling light bulbs, you go up into full-on goalposts, okay? And that's, that's vulnerable, goalposts. And so what you can do is you can kind of just mix it up every once in a while with like a, you know, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a strange thing, but mix it up with a little heartburn. You know what I'm saying? Other side, other side, you're doing good. Okay, now hands back up. Okay, you're doing good. You guys feeling good, feeling the burn? Okay, from there, the next one, it's kind of a a variation on the same. It's three variations on the same theme, okay? And it's basically this. You got pointer, hatchet, schoolroom, okay? Pointer, hatchet, schoolroom. And, of course, once you got it one-handed, you can just, you know, press it out. Just, you know, again, high-five Jesus. It's okay. It's okay to do that, okay? And then, and then once, you're, once you're in this pose, I think a lot of women, they love to, uh, again, wash the windows. You know what I'm saying? Guys don't like this as much. Some women, they go into dual wash the windows. And, and of course, once you're, once you're there, okay? Now, advanced hand raising is this, okay? Once you're up there, all of a sudden, this is, this is where, you know, the, we call it the big three, okay? And here they are. They're village people, rocky Touchdown, okay? You guys ready for that? You guys want to do it with me? Some of you are like, no, we are not going to do this. Come on. Is it okay to have fun? Somebody, anybody, somebody? make? Okay, okay, it's okay, it's okay. But here's the point. I think I think that people who grow up with these types of traditions, they're, they're oftentimes quite blind to them. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that hand-holding ever hurt anyone, unless, of course, you didn't wear deodorant. But you know what I'm saying? For the most part, you know, again, there's certain traditions that aren't that big of a deal. But, you know, when you go into most churches, I think there's a, lot, there's a massive amount of unspoken traditions that people aren't aware of. They just, they, they don't even think about them anymore. Long-term Christians. And, and I just, I think in, in many churches, though, it's even, it's even worse because people actually fight about these things. They, I mean, they get into big fights. Have you ever been in a church that's, that's in the middle of a worship war? I like to call them worship wars, right? And, they, and if you ever experienced that, and you know what I'm talking about. You've heard Christians talk about this. They'll, they'll say statements like this. If you were a real church, you would fill in the blank. You know what I'm saying? And everybody's got a different formula, slightly different recipe for how they do it, right? If you were a real church, you would do communion every week, right? And then, or if you were a real church, you would do 10 songs of worship, right? Because we all know it takes 10 songs for God to get into worship before he blesses it. And he's like, oh no, I want to bless them, but they've only done six songs. 
You know, like we all know that God is just like that, right? We all know that, uh, you know, if you are a real church, I've heard this so many times. Oh, I get a letter on this all, all the time. If you were a real church, you would do expository messages line by line through the Old Testament, right? That's what a biblical church does. That's preaching the Bible. It's expository, right? And, and of course, uh, listen to me, okay? Let me just talk. <clears throat> okay, now I'm going to pause him for a second here and do a little bit of fill-in, Okay. Church traditions that send the wrong message. Okay. So he's mentioned things like 15 songs. you got to sing 15 songs. I've never been a part of a congregation that had as a requirement or a tradition that you sing 15 songs before the, uh, the, the, um, <clears throat> the sermon. Okay. Next, communion. Every week, I'm writing this down. Communion every week, okay? That's another um, tradition that could send the wrong message. And here we go, expository Bible teaching. Expository Bible teaching. Apparently that's, well, a man-made tradition. And you're thinking, is he really trying to make the argument that expository Bible teaching is a man-made tradition that can actually send the wrong message? Well, the answer is yes, but I want you to hear it for yourself. Now, don't worry. I'm going to circle back and clean up some of what you're going to hear, but you need this is just the overview. Wait till he gives you the details as to why expository Bible teaching is, well, it's not even really necessary, and why communion every week is, well, that's just a tradition that gets in the way. Wait do you hear his logic. And as far as the 15 songs thing, yeah, I, I have no idea where that came from. Talk about this. First of all, communion was never even intended to be done in a church service. You realize that, right? Communion was a reinterpretation of a Passover meal, which is what you did with friends and families in closed quarters, right? You did, uh, again, not, not to say that. Okay. <laughs> You're thinking, did I hear that correctly? Yes. You you really heard that correctly. Let me back the audio up so that you can hear his logic here, and then we'll have to get into the biblical text. But listen again. You would do communion every week, right? And then, or if you were a real church, you would do 10 songs of worship, right? Because we all know it takes 10 songs for God to get into worship before he blesses it. And he's like, oh, no, I want to bless them, but they've only done six songs. Ah! You know, like, we all know that God is just like that, right? We all know that, uh, you know, if you were a real church, I've heard this so many times. Oh, I get a letter on this all, all the time. If you were a real church, you would do expository messages line by line through the Old Testament, right? That's what a biblical church does. That's preaching the Bible. It's expository, right? And, and of course, uh, listen to me, okay? Let me just talk about this. First of all, communion was never even intended to be done in a church service. You realize that, right? Okay, <clears throat> let me prove him wrong. If you have your Bible, please go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, okay? Now, I could go to the uh, the in, the words of institution of the Lord, you know, and pick one of the, pick any of the gospels here, but I want to show you something here. The apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is scripture. This is not some just opinion of some guy or dude. This is the apostle Paul commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, an eyewitness to the resurrection of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the apostle who was abnormally born. Now, he wrote a letter to the church at Corinth, 
a corrective letter, if you would. They had, well, there were certain things they were doing in their church services and certain things that they were putting up with that they shouldn't have been putting up with, okay? All pandemonium had broken loose, so much so that the the folks there at Corinth, the, at the church in Corinth, were getting drunk on the communion wine. No joke. So let's let's read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, notice his language there, when you come together as a church, so this is the setting, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together as the church, that's what Paul's point is, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat, for in eating one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here, the Apostle Paul is giving the exact opposite argument that Peter Haas is giving. Peter Haas is saying, well, you, 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 communion every week, man, that sends the wrong message. You, know, you do understand that communion was never meant to be part of a church service, right? Well, then why did the Apostle Paul chastise them for abusing the Lord's Supper during church services and said to them, listen, you, you, eating and drinking is for home, okay? Then here's the corrective, okay? Here's what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In fact, a careful, no, not it doesn't even have to be careful, a cursory reading of the, of the church fathers demonstrates that it was a common practice not legalistically, but a common practice that, well, communion was celebrated every single church service. Yeah, um, and that was, you know, for the Lord's Day. Okay, for instance, there were days where they would have services where they didn't have communion. That was when they were teaching the Bible during the weekdays. We even have John Chrysostom's uh, teaching and preaching uh, service schedule. I mean, uh, anyway, so what this guy is saying is just patently false, okay? Let me continue reading this. Okay, so here you got people at the church in Corinth who are abusing the Lord's Supper, and Paul is saying, because you're doing that, you're, you're, this isn't even the Lord's Supper, and he's reminding them then of the words of institution given by Christ himself on, you know, basically on the night that he was betrayed, Monday, Thursday, as part of the Passover celebration, he changes one of the cups, says this is, you know, he takes the bread, this is my body, uh, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person then examine himself 
And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So here, Peter Haas shows that he doesn't know his Bible, and he has no clue about church history, and he has no clue what to even do with the Lord's Supper. Good night. Let me, again, just back this up. It's absolutely breathtakingly bad. I mean, this, as far as I'm concerned, just this one disqualifies him from even being a pastor. Church does. That's preaching the Bible. It's expository, right? And, and of course, uh, listen to me, okay? Let me just talk about this. First of all, communion was never even intended to be done in a church service. You realize that, right? Communion was a reinterpretation of a Passover meal. Well, if it was never intended for a church service, then why did the Apostle Paul talk about when you do this, when you come together as a church? Hmm? Just read it, 1 Corinthians 11. Which is what you did with friends and families in closed quarters, right? You did uh, again, not not to say that it's bad if you do it in a church service, but come on, like so that we have to do it. I mean, you're adding to scripture to even say that, right? Or or you've just completely denied what scripture says. Or, or people who studied church history, they know that music wasn't even the driving force of church services until like the 1700s. I mean, yeah. Okay, again, okay. So music wasn't even the driving force in church services until the 1700s, okay? Now, I'm not going to argue that music has to be the driving force in church services. However, it's weird to me that he would basically make this claim, you know, because, listen, those seeker-driven guys, you you don't want to pin them down with too much worship. But uh, let me read another passage for you and uh, see what you think. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, and I'm also going to read from Colossians chapter 3. Again, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You um, are aware that the Bible has its own hymn book right in the dead center of it. It's called the Psalms, okay? That's the hymnal of the Bible, so, yeah, I would I would probably agree that, okay, yeah, music is the core center of the everything. Yeah, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. But it seems to me that if the Bible has a hymn book called the Psalms, that singing in church has always been important. In fact, if you don't believe me, I would recommend listening to a particular Internet-based radio station. It's called Lutheran Public Radio. Lutheran Public Radio. Radio. Look them up on the internet, and it's sacred music, basically, that's playing 24-7 on there from just about every single era of the Christian church. No kidding. No kidding. They got stuff from the 4th century, 5th century, 8th century, 9th century, uh, the, the 17th century. Weird. I mean, if singing has not been an important part of the church then why all of these songs throughout church history? I mean, when I go through my hymnal, I mean, literally, there are there are hymn texts here that are, like, old as dirt. And, I mean, and dirt's really old. Okay, I would even point you to, like, the Tadeum, okay, which is part of the Matin service. The Tadeum, I think that's a 4th century hymn. 
Okay, but again, let me, let me read from the scripture. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. Here's what Paul says, other passage. And above all these, put, it, put on love, which binds together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And he's writing to the church at, at uh, Colossae. Um, uh, Colossians chapter 3. And in which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but Colossians was written long before the 17th century. Just saying. The book of Psalms written long before the 17th century. So here we've got a pastor making absurd and preposterous claims uh, on the face of it, you, you, all you have to do is know your Bible, and you'll know that what he's saying is not true. Let me back this up. Again, well, you know, listen, well, you don't bother us about singing praise songs and stuff like that in church. Not that I'm a big praise song fan, but listen. Come on. Like, so that we have to do it? I mean, you're adding the Scripture to even say that, right? Or, or, or people who studied church history, they know that music wasn't even the driving force of church services until like the 1700s. I mean, it wasn't until the Moravians and Wesley, Charles Wesley and, and John Wesley before music became a central facet of the worship experience. And all- uh, central facet of the worship experience, the book of Psalms proves you wrong. It's always been a central part of the... <clears throat> worship service. I have no idea what a worship experience is. I don't know what the cash value of that term is. Altar ministries, not even until Finney in the 1800s. And yet some people, they consider these things the very litmus test as to whether the Holy Spirit even goes to church there. You know what I'm saying? So what, did the Holy Spirit not go to church for the first 1700 years? Your argument is fallacious. It's not even historically or biblically accurate. Really? I mean, like, seriously? Or, or like, again, expository messages. I mean, come on. I love them. I, I think we should be preaching line by line through Scripture uh, now and again. I love it. I love it. I, 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 again, I want more of it, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. I'm glad that you think that that, that, that should happen from time to time. Um, again, a passage of Scripture would uh, help here. Second um, Timothy, one of the pastoral epistles. Second um, Timothy, starting at chapter 3... Um, verse 14, I'll start at verse 14, chapter three, verse 14. But as for you writing to pastor Timothy, Paul writes, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That would be the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, correct, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, that's the Apostle Paul, okay, telling a pastor that his job is to what? Preach the word. For all scripture is God breathed. So, which part of it are you supposed to preach, by the way? Well, here's the words of Jesus. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 28, 
starting at verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All, not some, all. So the pastors in Christian churches have a job. Their job is to preach the word. How much of it? All of it. So my question would be this. How do you fulfill this command by Christ and the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit if you think that expository preaching, well, you take it or leave it. It's okay from time to time. But uh, don't sit there and make this a litmus test as to whether or not you know, we're really doing churchy things here. Okay? Weird, weird sermon. I want more of it. I want more of it. I'm fine with that. But come on. Jesus and Paul didn't even preach expository messages. Really? I mean, they... they pre- <clears throat> really? Jesus and Paul didn't preach expository messages. Number one, uh, may I point something out to you here? All of the words that we have of Jesus in his teaching are recorded for us in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, John makes a point of saying, listen, if we were to write down everything that Jesus said and did, all the books in the whole world probably couldn't contain them all, okay? But uh, keep this in mind. Every single time that Jesus opened his mouth, he was speaking the word of God. Why? Because he's God in human flesh. Next, how many of Paul's sermons do we have recorded in the New Testament? Hmm? If you want to be technical, we don't have any for real full-blown sermons of the Apostle Paul. No, we don't. Not at all. What we do have is a kind of a Cliff's Notes version of what he would say when he would go into a synagogue. I think you can find this like Acts chapter 13. And the one thing you'll find about it is that it's chock full of preaching about Jesus, and it's verse after verse after verse after verse of the Old Testament proving and claiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one promised to Israel. And and so um, this argument... This argument that he's giving is one of the lamest and flimsiest arguments I've ever heard in my life. Well, listen, I don't have to preach expositorily, man. Jesus didn't even do that. Well, listen, you moran. Jesus actually preached the word every time he opened his mouth because he's God in human flesh. Every time he spoke, he spoke the word of God. What kind of argument is this? Are you literally trying to argue that because Jesus didn't do expository preaching, that somehow that exempts you from it when there's a clear command given to you, pastor, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 to preach the word? What is this? Not go to church for the first 1,700 years? Really? I mean, like, seriously? Or, or like, again, expository messages. I mean, come on. I love them. I, I think we should be preaching line by line through Scripture uh, now and again. I love it. I love it. I, 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 again, I want more of it, right? I want more of it. I want more of it. I, I'm fine with that. But come on. Jesus and Paul didn't even preach expository messages. Really? I mean, they, they preach. We even read their messages in Scripture. They do an entire sermon, and they wouldn't even, sh- they wouldn't even share a single Scripture reference. Seriously? You see, and this stuff, you need to understand this. This is exactly why the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, do not let people take you captive with human traditions that rather than Christ. 
seriously. So when somebody says, listen, you need to preach the word, all of it, that somehow that's a human tradition based on human philosophy and not in accord with Christ. You've got to be kidding. You are aware, though, that the passage that you're quoting is from the Bible. So you're trying to basically quote the Bible to say that we don't need to preach the Bible. That's patently absurd. There are spiritual traditions that are really based on, 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 on human traditions, right, rather than Christ. Yeah, so, okay, spiritual traditions not based on Christ. Ready? Singing hymns and, and stuff like that in church. That's a human tradition, despite the fact I showed you biblically we're told to do that. Communion, well, human tradition. It wasn't even supposed to be part of a church service. And expository Bible teaching. These are the human traditions that you are to look out for and to avoid like the plague because they get in the way of Christ. If I hadn't played this for you, would you have believed me if I told you this is what he was going to say? And that's why Paul kept saying, there's going to be people who are going to come along. They're going to judge you about Sabbath days. They're going to judge you about worship formats and new moon celebrations and all that. Worship formats, really. Where, where does the book of Colossians mention worship formats? It doesn't. You stuck that in the text. All that kind of stuff. Listen, you got you to gotta let them know those hyper-spiritual people, they don't get it. But it's going to happen to you. They're going to come along. They're going to judge you. You're going to. And, and okay, he's not correctly quoting Colossians at all here. And again, you can see this. You can see this in Christian bookstores. You can see this when you podcast sermons. There are so many people with religiously transmitted diseases. That's what I call them. And, and people have them all the time. In every generation, there's this temptation to over spiritualize some new church tradition. And before long. So, over spiritualize expository preaching, singing, um, and communion. Now we have a formula by which we can separate the super Christians from the compromised. And you can hear the way people talk. There's this elitism that gets into the church. And I just, I think, come on, people, that is exactly why. Yet he has an elitism of his own. He shows that he is elitist in his thinking because we're free from having to sing. We don't, we're free from that horrible church tradition of communion. Oh, and expository Bible preaching, we're not going to let that get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. No way. I, many people missed the living Christ who walked among them. They missed, think about it. There were spiritual people who loved God's word who missed the very son of God when he was walking on planet earth simply because he didn't fit into their simplistic little worship formula. Think about how... Uh, no, that's not correct. I would recommend that you read the Gospels, and you'll be able to see why it is that the Pharisees didn't accept Christ. How, how silly they felt when they got to heaven, and they realized these types of things, or, or maybe the other place, you know what I'm saying? Uh, think about it. This must have been a scary thing, and, and, and you'll notice this. The Pharisees, they were constantly critiquing Christ because he doesn't do the same purity rituals we do. He doesn't obey the same Sabbath rules. And keep in mind... Do you, do you know why Jesus didn't have to purify himself? Because he never sinned. By Jesus' time, the, the Pharisees had literally invented over 100 additional rules that went beyond Scripture about how a real God follower needed to follow the Sabbath. 
So people are always trying to add to Scripture. Yes, they are. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're adding a new commandment. Thou shalt not do expository Bible preaching. Thou shalt not have communion every week or ever or, or regularly. And thou shalt not um, sing too many songs in church. That's what you're doing. You're setting up a human tradition. And the things that you've said are clearly contradicted by what God's Word says in context. Um, for the for the purpose of protecting, you know, the, the body. But you know what? It leads to slavery. And so they said, you know what? You're not a real God follower unless you do it just like this. And that is exactly why they could not see Jesus as the Christ. He did not meet their 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 strange definition of what it really meant to be a true biblical Christian. They threw out the label compromise. In fact, they even went worse. They called him Beelzebub, the, I mean, the prince of demons. I mean, wow, how wrong could you be by a religious person, right? Yeah, they were wrong. Why? Because they were saving themselves by their own self-righteousness. And they didn't understand that salvation is a free gift given by Christ. Christ freely forgave sins because he's the God who can do so on basically pointing forward to his sacrificial death on the cross. You don't understand the Pharisees and their theology at all and why they were at odds with Christ. And Jesus wasn't the only person being labeled as compromised. Okay, for, there, were, there were all sorts of people that were constantly being beat up by religious people. Okay, for example, um, in Jesus' time, there was this big debate about Jerusalem being the only place where real believers worshipped, right? If you were a real believer, you'd come to Jerusalem all the time to worship. In fact, and because the Samaritans disagreed, a lot of the religious leaders of that day would actually, uh, they actually used the word Samaritan as a swear word. Think about that. Uh, Real God followers shouldn't even talk with them. In fact, many Pharisees, they were even taught uh, how to avoid touching uh, non-religious people. Think about that. Think about how hyper-spiritual that is. In fact, they would actually make certain uh, uh, Pharisees, uh, they, would have to, they would have to, for a minimum of three months to a year, not touch any non-believer for being you know, made impure. It's clear you have no clue what you're talking about. Uh, for worship. I mean, think about how hyper-spiritual this stuff is. And yet, and so the, the Samaritans, obviously, you know, they're, they were, they're, this was an ethnic issue too, because I think they had intermarried, I believe it was with the, the Assyrians. And, and yet, check this out. John chapter 4, we read that Jesus uh, is having this conversation with a woman at a well, which was a pretty strange thing because uh, we read that Jesus not only talked to a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. I mean, wow. And not only a Samaritan woman, but a woman who was a prostitute. I mean, no, she wasn't. You didn't read the text before you preached it, did you? She's not a prostitute. I mean, this was a triple whammy for any, any religious person. I mean, this, this would have discredited you as a spiritual leader to have this conversation back then. And yet Jesus is having it. And so he's ministering to her. He's, you know, he's, he's at the well and he, he prophetically shared certain things about this woman's life. And so he's ministering to her and suddenly she puts her guard up and she started a debate with him about one of these worship debates in John chapter 4, verse 20. Let me read it to you real quick. John chapter 4, verse 20. She all of a sudden gets defensive because she, she's just waiting for the attack to come from Jesus, just like it came from everybody else, right? So she all of a sudden puts her guard up by starting the debate proactively. And she says, you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, John 4.20. In other words, you Jews constantly call us compromised. You, you reject us because you think we're not, we're not real God followers. And, and Yeah, notice what he's trying to do here. He's trying to basically 
color himself as the equivalent of the Samaritan woman. Okay? You Jews say we're compromised and see she's just a victim of those Pharisees, right? Yeah, here's the problem. Historically, the Samaritans were idolaters. They had a syncretistic religion that was just way off from what God has revealed in his word, okay? So the Jews who didn't want to have to go into exile again, you know, keep in mind the whole Babylon thing, were very strict to keep God's word and to not syncretize it with the Samaritans. And so there was an ongoing feud. The Samaritans didn't like it. But the Jews were right, and Jesus makes a point of pointing that out. Let me let me read a little bit too, uh, a little bit of the text, so you can kind of get what's going on here. John chapter four, verse seven: A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, "Give me a drink," for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Jesus was in Samaria, by the way. Um, the Samaritan woman said to him, "How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans." Okay, it's not because that, you know, this isn't about the worship wars, the style of music or the seeker driven methodology or anything like that. Right. Or expository Bible teaching. That's not what that's the heart of this. So Jesus answered here, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying that you have no husband, um, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now comes the religious debate, so to speak. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, Okay, Jesus doesn't say the Jews had it wrong. Listen to what he says. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus doesn't take a, sli- a swipe at the Jews. He affirms that they that salvation is from the Jews, and they worship what they know. Why? How do they know? Well, they have the word of God, right? The Torah and the prophets and the writings, right? But here's what he says. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now keep in mind, okay, pointing to Jerusalem is to point to the temple. What takes place at the temple is the sacrifice of animals, for the forgiveness of sins, for cleansing from trespasses and things of all that, right? The the temple is about to be destroyed in 70 AD. It's coming. Jesus is, is going to prophesy it, right? But here's the deal. Jesus is the temple, the one that the 
building was pointing to. Remember when Jesus, when he turned over the tables of the money changers, they, the Jews asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Jesus says, tear down this temple, pointing to himself, and I will build it again in three days. And then they say, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to build it again in three days? And then John notes the temple he was referring to was the temple of his body. So Jesus is the temple, the one that the building was pointing to. Why? Because his body is was broken, pierced, and crucified for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. So Jesus pointing to the hour that is coming, okay, going to Jerusalem ain't going to matter. Okay, because the once for all forever sacrifice for sins by the temple of Jesus's body was about to take place. That's what he's pointing to. Okay, so the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Right. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to him, one other, has anyone brought him food? And he says, my food is to do the will of God. Anyway, you can read the rest of the story in John chapter 4. But this isn't about the worship wars and about church methodology or anything like that. And Jesus affirms that the Jews had it right and the Samaritans worshipped at what they didn't know. That's what he said. On and on, and then Jesus stops her, and I love this, okay? He immediately responded, and he just said straight to her, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers uh, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Come on, John 4, verse 23. In other words, Jesus basically goes out and says, this whole worship debate that you think I'm about to have with you, let me just tell you something. I'm not going to engage in this because let me tell you, there is a whole new type of worship that is about to emerge on planet Earth. And this whole entire system of worship in Jerusalem is about to change. And that's exactly why Jesus Jesus was kind of saying the same thing when when he said, remember, remember, he, uh, he actually said, if you have faith and you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, it'll happen. Guess what mountain he was actually pointing at when he said that? He was literally pointing at the temple mountain. The, the, the very place where the focus of all worship, the, the, the center idol of, of a lot of Jews at the time, he's literally pointing Idol. You're calling the temple of God, the place where God has put his holy name. You're calling it an idol. That is so far out of bounds. It disqualifies you from being a pastor. You don't know what you're talking about. Pointing to that mountain saying, listen, th- this entire system of worship can be tossed into the sea if you learn how to live by grace through faith. If you've got faith, you can say to that whole system, you know what? It's done. It's a different way of, of, of relating to God. God is about to usher you into a whole new way of relating to him if you can understand faith. And grace that comes through that faith. It's a heart condition. Worshiping in spirit and in truth. It's not a format. It's not a formula. It's not a geography. It's not a 10 songs or 7 songs or 30 minutes of altar prophecy or or 40 minutes of expository messages. All those systems are nothing more than human traditions. No, they're not. I prove that definitively by showing you their root and commands in God's word itself. Expository preaching, communion, and hymns and singing are not human traditions. 
they are grounded and based in the clear teaching and commands of the Word of God itself. You're not saying the truth. See to it that no one takes you captive, because even today people will take you captive with hollow and deceptive philosophies. And then Jesus did the unthinkable with the Samaritan woman. I mean, not only did he minister to her, but he actually ministered to the entire city. I mean, a revival broke out in the very place where most spiritual people thought was completely compromised. I mean, just when you think God is about to stay within our little confines, our little formats, our little formulas, all of a sudden he changes. And he, an unlikely revival. And I, I'm telling you, you have to understand how scandalous that passage was. Jesus' Jewish colleagues must have thought, Jesus, you are out of your mind. You are compromised beyond compromise. You are a heretic beyond heretics. And the reason why I'm bringing this all up, church, is because, okay, this is really just the, the, uh, the intro, believe it or not. The reason why I brought all this up is because I believe that Jesus had this very woman in mind. The woman at the well in John 4, when he flipped over the tables of the money changers. If you guys remember in the Gospels, uh, do you guys remember that at all? You know, in Mark- Listen, now he's eisegeting. So now he's got this, he's going to basically stick into the ta- Jesus' overturning of the money changers. He's going to omit something here. He's going to execto knife out an important part of this passage. So listen carefully to what he does here. He's engaging in eisegesis, reading something into the text that isn't there. Mark 11, uh, Jesus is in the temple of Jerusalem and all of a sudden, literally, he has a, he has a, a whip and he's flipping over the tables of the money changers and literally uh, created a, essentially a blockade for people to avoid coming into that entire section of the temple. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. I mean, this is, it almost seemed a little bit terrorist-like. I mean, Jesus is uh, disrupting the entire event. And, and, and now again, I, I remember when I first read that passage, it's in Mark 11, you can read it on your own time. But I, I remember when I first read Mark 11, I thought, gosh, Jesus. Yeah, he, don't, don't expect him to read it to you because he doesn't have any time. And plus, he doesn't want to get caught in human traditions by engaging in expository Bible teaching. Don't you think you're overreacting a little bit? You know, I mean, really, you needed a whip. You really needed to flip over tables. I mean, I mean he is ticked off. I mean, he's flipping over tables with a whip. I mean, we always imagine, you know, cute and cuddly Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Come unto me, children. You know, like we imagine that Jesus. And this is Jesus, like, this is Jesus flipping over tables. I mean, this is perhaps the most angry example of Christ that we see in the whole Bible. But let me ask you this. Who was he angry at? And what was really going on right here in this passage? I'm telling you, this will blow your mind. Uh, when you really study this, okay, at the climax of the, of the passage, right? Mark 11, verse 15, after flipping over all these tables, Jesus says a really profound statement, and here it is. This is what you need to get, and he says this. Mark eleven fifteen. he says, he just shouts out, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. It's very important to you understand Jesus was not saying that... Okay, I'm going to point something out here. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. This is duplicitous on his part. Okay? Let me read to you, starting at verse 15. I'm going to point out something. And by the way, when you're doing expository Bible teaching and you're paying attention to what the passage says, pay attention to punctuation, too. Okay? Mark 11:15 They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry any anything through the temple 
And as he was teaching them, saying and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer? Question mark. But you have made it a den of robbers. You will notice there, the is it not written, that is a question, an interrogative statement. And he answers it, so to speak. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's omitting the second part, and he's teaching the question as if it's a statement all by itself. Listen again, the punctuation really matters. Here we go. House of prayer for all nations. It's very important to you understand Jesus was not saying that we should pray more, that we should make this just a nice little prayer thing going on. Because uh, remember, Pharisees, they already prayed for nine hours a day. I mean, they, they literally prayed and meditated for nine hours a day in three three-hour segments. They'd, they'd pray and meditate for three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, three hours in the evening. These guys were constantly praying. So how could he be saying to pray more? I mean, why would, why would he be so upset about them? What, what is the magic number 12, Jesus? Is it 15 hours of prayer a day? That's what we should be doing? My house is a house of prayer, right? Pray more? No. Talk about missing the whole point of this text. Good grief. Right? Pray more? No. Okay. Remember, uh, the emphasis here is a house of prayer for all nations. Yeah, the punchline was, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. They were making merchandise, making a profit. Hoy, it would help if you would like finish Jesus' statement. Why did you only quote half of it? Now, that, those three words, for all nations, were absolutely critical. Uh, because in, even though um, in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, they actually leave out that last phrase, uh, the reason they leave it out is because their listeners automatically knew what Jesus was saying. Everybody knew that this little ending, this expression, my house of prayer for all nations, was actually a, a famous line out of the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus wasn't just saying this, my house is a house of prayer for all nations. He was literally quoting Isaiah 56 out of the Old Testament, okay? And and everybody of that day, they knew this, because this was a famous, well-preached upon uh, uh, chapter from Isaiah, okay? And and basically, uh, for those of you who've never read Isaiah 56, um, it's basically a famous rebuke of hyper-religious people. This is a rebuke of people who are elitist, who are making it hard for other people to experience God. This was really Psalm 50, uh, not Psalm, Isaiah 56 is about a bunch of elitist people who are making it hard for other people to experience God. Notice again, I'm going to point this out. Major theme in this so-called sermon is that it's religious people that are keeping people away from experiencing Jesus, not their sin. It's those religious people. Okay, Isaiah 56, let's just read it and see, what, see what's going on in this passage. Isaiah 56, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the fat Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Hmm, doesn't seem like a rebuke of religious elitists to me. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am but a dry tree, for thus says the Lord. To the eunuchs 
who keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make their and make them joyful in my house, in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my good house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples or nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Hmm. Doesn't seem to be a sharp rebuke of religious elitists to me, like not even a single mention of religious elitists who are keeping people from experiencing Jesus. Nothing of the sort. Basically an indictment against elitist uh, spirituality, people who idolize formulas. And so all throughout Isaiah 56, God is talking about God seekers who feel disenfranchised, people who want to know God, but they feel like an outsider. Um, that's not really true. I just read the passage. And I, I, again, they're, they're, so God promises, I will defend those of you who want to experience God, but you feel like outsiders. And the text nowhere in Isaiah 56 says that. And guess what? I think there's a lot of outsiders right now in the body of Christ in the United States. Yeah, no, no kidding. I bet you just invented that all out of your own head, didn't you? It's interesting how when you go up and you talk to the average unchurched person, many of them believe in God. Many of them love the teachings of Christ. They just feel incompatible with church. Yeah, you know, they see, they would actually be believers and followers of Jesus if it weren't for those pesky people who insisted on communion and expository teaching and singing, you know, hymns and stuff like that. See, the, the people out there, they would love to... to you know, be a Christ follower, except for all those human traditions that are getting in the way. In fact, even you, you even survey young Christians, only about 27% of them, according to a Harris poll, it's somewhere around there, 27, 26, only about a very small number of people have any faith in the organized church. And I keep thinking, why is that? Why are there so many people who love Jesus, yet just feel incompatible with his church? Now, point something out here. Um, is this what the Bible, how the Bible describes those outside the church? They already love Jesus. They're generally good people. They, they really want to learn more about Jesus, but the church is getting in the way. No. They're described as dead and tres in, in their trespasses and sins. They are at war with God. They are by nature objects of God, God's wrath. See Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, right? It, see, the problem with unbelievers is that they're dead in trespasses and sins. So how would they be, see, since they're dead in, ha in trespasses and sins, they're hostile to God. Yeah, in fact, let me read a biblical passage I think will help us here. Romans chapter 8, okay? I'll start at verse 1 to keep the, co the context, okay? Paul, after Romans chapter 7, basically talks about the struggle that it is to be a Christian, you know, you're now at war with your own sinful flesh, and so the things you don't want to do, you do. The things you don't want to do, you uh, don't do. Want to do, you don't do. And he's d lamenting, who's going to rescue me from this body of flesh? Right? Romans chapter one, eight, verse one. Here's what it says: There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So here we've got Pastor Haas basically claiming, listen, there's a whole bunch of people out there. They're not hostile to God. They love Jesus. But the church is getting in the way with their human traditions, you know, like singing hymns and communion and expository Bible teaching. They would come to the church except for all of that. Hogwash. The scripture says the mind that is set on the flesh, you can say the one who is dead in trespasses and sins, the unregenerate, it's not that they love Jesus. It says that they're hostile to God. They do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hebrews eleven six coincides with this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So those outside of the church are not people who are just dying to get in if it wasn't for all that expository Bible teaching. No. They're hostile to God. He doesn't know his scripture, and what he's saying is absolutely, patently absurd and false. They feel like outsiders. Well, again, keep in mind, okay, the money changers in Jesus' day, these guys were like the enforcers of true spirituality, okay? They were the ones who, who made sure everybody paid their dues, especially the outsiders, they were like the, the, the Gestapo. They were like the, the morality police, okay? so for More like the morality money makers. What are you talking about? Where, where did you get any of this information? Which commentary did you read? What seminary did you go to? Ask the question. I'll ask, I've asked it of other people. Did you go to DeVry for your seminary degree? For example, um, people like the Samaritan woman were told, if you want to be a true believer, then you got to come to Jerusalem. You got to do it like the way we want you to do it, right? And Jesus affirmed that salvation is of the Jews and that the Jews worship what they know, but the Samaritans what they don't know. I read it, remember? Right? And of course, keep in mind, traveling was, was incredibly dangerous. It was incredibly expensive. It was incredibly time-consuming. Uh, you had to be wealthy in order to make the journey to Jerusalem. But of course... To worship in Jerusalem, you needed an animal to sacrifice, right? And yet you can't travel with these animals. I mean, it's not functional. And so what you do is in order to worship... Again, what, what are your sources for any of this? It just sounds like you're making up your own ideas and calling it biblical. You don't sound like anybody who's studied any biblical history or has any real knowledge of what it was like at all in Jerusalem, you made this expensive, time-consuming, dangerous journey, and finally, once you got there, you had to buy an animal from the money changers in Jerusalem at a massively inflated price. Yeah, that was the problem. That's why Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That's why he turned over the money tables. Get it? 
In order to worship, you had to pay a massively inflated price. And so the religious people, they loved the money changers because the money changers inflating all the prices, making it very, very expensive for these outsiders to worship, it basically sent a message to everyone, and it was this. If you were really spiritual, you'd just uproot your entire life. You'd come live here. You'd move here. You'd embrace... Oh, this is so ignorant. It's ridiculous. Um, yeah, uh, no, that wasn't sending the message. If you were really spiritual, you'd come live here. What are you talking about? People had lives that they lived in other towns and they would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem annually as a fan. Sometimes some of them more than annually. Good gravy. Race our formula with, with passion. If you were really spiritual, you'd do it the way we want you to do. You'd move to Jerusalem. But because you don't follow... Oh, man. This is literally the blind leading the blind. This is like pooling of utter ignorance. Follow our formula. We are going to go out of our way to make you pay for it. And so, in essence, Jesus is basically saying... Uh, and, and really, he's quoting Isaiah 56, where God is saying, I want outsiders to experience the joy of prayer, not the cost of prayer. The joy of connecting with God, not the cost of connecting with God. But you, money changers, you, 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 uh, you, those of you, you religious establishment, you've made it hard for pilgrims, for foreigners, or seekers to find God. You claim to be now. Notice he's by by his analysis, he's equating those pastors who do expository Bible teaching, have communion every week, and sing hymns. They are this of the same ilk as the money changers. That's how he set this all up. Protecting the true message. And yet, ironically, you are obscuring it. You're making it hard for outsiders to even understand who God is. And worst of all, you religious people, you do it under the guise of protecting true spirituality, even though you don't even give a rip about those outside these four walls, the nations. And and church, keep in mind, this is... This is perhaps the most angry example of Christ we see in the whole Bible. And uh, No, I disagree with that. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. You want to see Jesus really upset? Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on uh, th- that no one else knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yeah, you think the overturning of the money tables and Jesus making a whip of cords and driving out the money changers was violent? Wait till this day. You know what caused it? Religious sin. Religious sin. And I would actually make the argument that I believe in the United States, the real problem is not that sinners sin. Come on, that's all they know how to do. It's their sin nature. They haven't been set free. Of course sinners are going to sin. Of course sinners are going to think sinful thoughts. They're going to think sinful ideologies. Why are we mad at them for doing what only they, that, the only thing they know how to do? 
Come on. The real reason is, is because we haven't gotten our, our, our stuff in shape. The judgment begins in the house of God. So judgment begins in the house of God. We've got to get rid of these church human traditions. Expository Bible teaching, communion, and hymns and songs. Because my Bible says, if, if my people, God says, would, who are called by my name would humble themselves, then I'll, bring, I'll heal the land. In case we're your- so humbling yourself is getting rid of your expository Bible teaching, your communion, and your hymns and songs. You're wondering why, you know, things aren't happening politically, spiritually, you know, morally with the church. Well, guess what? The problem is in the church. It's not out there. It's not because we don't have the right politician. It's not because we don't have the right this, that, and the other thing. Ultimately, I believe that, that, that the church has the ability to steer the whole nation. And the church will only steer the whole nation when we deal with religious sin. Are you getting this, okay? Yeah, religious sin, like expository Bible teaching, communion, and yeah. I know this is so serious and all that kind of stuff, so you guys, is this okay? You guys following me here? Okay, so let me just, let me just kind of uh, boil it down with one little simple story, and I want to close with this. You know, a couple years ago... Don't worry, it won't be from the Bible. He wouldn't want to break his own rule about getting rid of human traditions like expository Bible teaching. This will be from his own life. There was this couple uh, that came to one of our newcomers' receptions. And, and of course, uh, they had just come to church for the first time that day. This is the first time they'd ever been in our church. And, uh, and I could tell that, you know, so they're at our newcomers' reception. I knew this was their first time. And uh, I could tell they were Christians by their lingo. You know what I'm saying? You can just kind of tell, praise God. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, nobody else says that but Christians, right? So, uh, you know, so I could tell by their lingo they were Christians. And so I just said, you know, uh, what church did you attend before this? Like, where, where, where did you go before this? And they just immediately like, oh, like, like they're going to tell me about a church disaster. Oh, we finally left our last church. I'm telling and, and, and I'm like, why? What was going on? And they're like, I'm telling you, our pastor, he grieved the Holy Spirit. He grieved the Holy Spirit. And yeah, I mean, he cut the worship down from 15 songs to 11 songs. Can you believe that? It doesn't even sound like a legitimate complaint to me. 11 songs. Wow. I, okay. I, I was trying to hide the shock. I mean, wow. Grieve the Holy Spirit. 11 songs. And he refused to do communion every single week. And so we left. We just knew God has abandoned this church and we need to abandon it too. And so and in my mind, I kept thinking to myself, did you even go to our church this morning? Because we didn't do communion, nor did we do 15 songs. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I'm, 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 there's this weird disparity. And I'm thinking, what is the difference between like, wh- where are you coming from? Why are you here? And why are you even talking to me at this newcomer's luncheon? You must hate me. You must think I'm even 10 times more com- compromised than your pastor. Like, and, and so in my mind, I thought, okay, you know, well, nice meeting you. You know, we'll never see you again, right? I, that, that's, that's what I was thinking, right? Well, so in, in my mind, I thought they're going to they're gonna hate our church. And the last thing I want to do is try to woo them into our church because then, you know, that, that's all I need are some more hate, more hate mail, right? So then I, I thought uh, they won't be around long. And yet, sure enough, six months later, they're still around. They're in our church. I kept thinking, what is going on? Why is this couple still here? You know, totally involved. And of course, uh, right around that time, uh, you know, we were having a lot of different miracles were happening at our church. We had a, uh, we had a blind woman uh, get healed after our site. She literally, uh, she, she literally got healed, got her sight back after our church members had prayed for her. Okay, now stop here. I'm not going to challenge the, whether or not that really was a legitimate healing or not. Okay, here's the reason why. Scripture makes it clear that God 
says that he will send false prophets. Now he's sending them, but that, to test people. Okay, it, you find this in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, false prophets are known when they say something's going to happen and it doesn't happen. You know that's a false prophet. But you also, God gives another test when a false prophet says something is going to happen or they work a miracle and it takes place. If they are teaching false doctrine then they are still a false prophet. So here's the idea. Let's just say, all right, here's the deal. Sure, there was a blind lady at Substance Church. The people who attend Substance Church prayed for her, and she received her sight back. Does that prove that God doesn't want us to do expository Bible teaching to chuck communion and to uh, not focus on singing any songs and stuff like that, right? Not at all, because here's the reason why. The devil can perform signs and wonders to mislead the elect if that were possible. So I'll say, okay, sure, it's a legitimate healing, no problem, but it doesn't prove anything because the teaching is warped and corrupt. The teaching at this church is absolutely warped and corrupt. This guy does not properly handle God's word. He is basically saying that expository Bible teaching is a church human tradition and things like that, arguing against communion and stuff like that. What he's saying is clearly contradicted by clear passages in the word of God. So therefore, I have only one biblical conclusion to come to, and that's that this miracle took place as a deception created by the devil to basically create the impression that God is at work in this place when he's not, because the teaching proves that God is not at work there, because if it were, he'd be preaching the word, teaching sound doctrine, rightly handling God's word, and not knocking expository Bible teaching, communion and hymns and songs, as if those are human traditions that are keeping people out of the church. Uh, total miracle. I mean, it was like just right out of the Bible. And of course, you know, as you'd imagine, news about this miracle spread like wildfire through our entire congregation. I mean, people were talking about this. I mean, what was it like to be there? Those of you who saw it, I mean, it was almost like everybody that saw it was all of a sudden, you know, like, you know, sharing all about it. I mean, people were just like stunned by this. And of course, at the same time, we were having all these radical conversions in our church. And, and so I remember um, right around that time, I was talking to this couple uh, that, that couple that I thought was going to leave really quickly, uh, they were they were talking to me, uh, and we were just talking about some of these miracles. And, and so then I, I thought, you know what? I'm going to ask them point blank a simple question. It's this. Why are you guys still here? And I know it's kind of an awkward pa- uh, question for a pastor to ask, but uh, I thought, you know what? I'm so curious. Like, why are you still here? And then I reminded them of what they said about their old pastor uh, six months earlier. And of course, you know, as I reminded them about this, both of them, uh, they stopped and they kind of hung their heads in shame and they said, Pastor, oh, oh, we're, so bar- we're so embarrassed. We, we had a religiously transmitted disease. Let's just be honest, okay? We would, you know, we had, again, we had been listening to certain podcasts and listening to certain religious preachers. We, and they go, you know what happened? In the end, we realized something. We didn't even want the format we claimed we wanted. In the end, we didn't even want what we wanted. What we realized, uh, uh, we realized we had been putting the Holy Spirit into a very, very narrow box. And in the end, you know what? You know what we really wanted? We just wanted to be in a place where, where lost people get found every single week. And when we saw that happening here, we thought, you know what? This is where we want to be. It's not what we expected. It's not what we... Were any lost people found as a result of this pharisectomy sermon? Nope. 
We thought, but it's, it, we got so addicted to that. And, and then, then, get this, okay, they, then they said something that absolutely rattled me. And I, I've never been able to forget this ever since. And it just, it's impacted me. They said, they, they said, Pastor, in the end, we got so addicted to the fruit that the format didn't matter. Mm-hmm. They became addicted to the fruit. But see, here's the problem. You'll know a false teacher or a wolf in sheep's clothing by their fruit. What's their fruit? Their teaching. So they became addicted to false teaching. And they were thinking that, oh, the, 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 all of the hype that was going on around there was God the Holy Spirit at work. But how would God the Holy Spirit be at work in a church where the pastor literally mangles and butchers his word? I don't think that's possible. We were so addicted to the fruit, the format didn't even matter anymore. And they said, Pastor, we don't even, you could do banjo music and we, in the church and we wouldn't care. As long as the lost keep getting found, we... Really, what are they being found by? False teaching? Are, we just want to let you know we're beyond all the superficial... And, and what, are, what are the uh, lost people being fed? Not expository Bible teaching. That's a human tradition. So what are they being taught? Formatting debates. We don't even. We know that church isn't even a church service. It's about a community of people who love God. We just want you to know we are all in. And as I walked away from that, it just it challenged me because I started having my own revelation as to what it really means to experience Christ. And that's the question I want to ask you today. I want to leave you with this. And it's and here it is. Here's the question: What traditions are you addicted to? You know, like expository Bible teaching, communion hymns and songs and you know, things like that. You know, is your model of church really about the lost or is it about the found? Ah, well, Jesus commands his apostles and pastors to feed his sheep. So if a pastor is about the business of feeding sheep, well, goats, he's not feeding Christ's sheep. So you tell me what's the job of the pastor? It, the, the teaching gifts are for the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, you know, evangelists were always sent out of the church into the world to proclaim the gospel, and those who were brought to repentance and faith were brought into the church. Read the book of Acts, right? You know, because if the Bible actually says, heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents versus 99 righteous shouting at the top of their lungs... With that kind of disproportionate response... Yeah, that's not man, what that text exactly says. Man, you want to get on God's good side? Wow, love what he loves. L- celebrate what heaven celebrates. Do you come to church to be fed or do you come to feed others? This is utter blasphemy. Utter blasphemy. What's your motive? What, wh- yeah, don't come to church expecting to be fed. We, we don't buy into those human traditions, you know, like expository Bible teaching the Lord's Supper, you know, and songs and hymns and stuff like that. No, we've got way more important things to do than that. When was the last time you even invited someone to church? That's not a church. I would never invite my even my worst enemy to a place like that. There's a good question. You see, I believe right now, if you just listen to the Holy Spirit, I believe that... Yeah, don't listen to the... Just listen to the Holy Spirit, you know, just send out your feelers like you're a Jedi. I mean, he's out there in the ether somewhere, just... just Quietly listen for him. Maybe he'll talk to you. I believe that Jesus would love to come 
and overturn a few tables in your heart today. Yeah, you know, get rid of that table of expository Bible teaching, the Lord's Supper, and, you know, hymns and songs and stuff like that. I want you to listen to him. And maybe maybe you're here today, and maybe you're one of those people who, who've felt disenfranchised. Maybe you've never experienced what Isaiah 56 promises, the joy of God in his house of prayer. You've never experienced joy. Yes, because those religious people were keeping you out by feeding Christ's sheep with expository Bible teaching and the Lord's Supper and things like that. Oh, you are a victim. How dare those religious people keep you out? We already, you were probably born a Christ follower and don't even know it. Come on. That's what what it's all about. Love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Listen, that joy only comes... By surrender, though, and you need to understand that right here in this moment, even if you're remotely open, I can lead you into that joy. And so wherever you're at, if you're watching on video, on the Internet, or at one of our campuses, just close your eyes with me. And I want, I want to just do business with God. Yeah, done. Folks, that is what the preaching of Antichrist sounds like. I know that sounds strong, but see, it's the devil who doesn't want you to hear expository Bible preaching. It's the devil who doesn't want you to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. It's the devil who doesn't want you having the Lord's Supper. No, only the devil would claim that those things are human traditions that get in the way of well-meaning people who would already be followers of Jesus if it weren't for all those religious people insisting on those types of horrible human traditions. That is is what the preaching of Antichrist sounds like, where good is called evil and evil is called good, where right is called wrong and wrong is called right. It's backwards, upside down, and the fact that he was twisting God's word and mangling it so bad, that is the tactic not of a Christian pastor who who carefully exegetes God's word and rightly handles it. That's the same tactic the devil used when he tempted Jesus um, in the wilderness. Same exact temptation. So who are you going to believe? The guy who mangles God's word? The guy who can't even get church history right? Or are you going to listen to the Apostle Paul and to Jesus? Preach the word, commanding them, or Jesus says, you know, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. This guy is dangerous really dangerous. And unfortunately, I'm hearing more and more and more of these exact same kind of messages from people who call themselves Christian pastors, who are basically saying, your Bible preaching, your pastor's Bible preaching is getting in the way of building the kingdom of God. That's flat out demonic and satanic. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.